when you looked at the um, employment pages, there were jobs for women and jobs for men. And there's no question you wanted to be in the male category. Hi, everybody. This is Alan Salisbury with the Coda Support Foundation, and welcome to Episode 3 of Profiles in Service, the podcast that explores service to the nation in all its dimensions. Today, I'm privileged to have as my guest Elizabeth Becker, award-winning journalist, war correspondent, foreign correspondent, and author. At the risk of dating myself, I'm going to describe you, Elizabeth, as a distinguished member of the Fourth Estate. <laughs> the noble profession of journalism. Welcome to the program, and thanks for being with us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I'd like to start with your most recent endeavor, your newly published book, You Don't Belong Here, How the Three Women Rewrote the Story of War. You're garnering terrific reviews on this, I'm happy to say, and it contains a strong message reaching all the way back to the Vietnam War 50 plus years ago. When did you first decide you had to write these stories? Um, like a lot of journalists, we're used to, we're told all the time, you're writing the first draft of history. And, um, but that's about something else. It took me a while to realize that I was part of that history as a, you know, as a foreign correspondent, as a war correspondent in, in, um, during the Vietnam War and the Cambodia campaign. And um, it took years to realize that. And as I did, I realized that the real story were the pioneer women who came at the beginning of the war and who really excelled not only at um, breaking the glass ceiling, but at really changing how the war is seen and, um, and being recognized for that as such. So that's many years. I didn't decide that I had to write it until about 2015. These three women uh, were your inspiration and role models who proved that women were fully capable of working in the then at least man's world of war amid the dangers and chaos of the battlefield. This put the lie to the long-held belief that they should only focus on the women's angle uh, in their stories. That said, uh, I kind of detect in your writing the notion that at least some women outdo many of the men in their ability to not only be present in the moment, but to be able to take a more comprehensive view, including the historical, societal, cultural forces, and even human impacts. Is that a fair analysis? Well, there's no question that as outsiders, these women did all that you just said. Um, I don't like to boil it down to woman versus man. That, that's too easy and, it's too, and, it, and it misses a whole bunch of points. They did. And um, let me explain what outsider means. These women came without jobs. No one sent them. They paid their own way. They did not have experience as political reporters or anything resembling that. They had no resumes to speak of. 
they had to pay their own tickets. And when they got there, they had no editor telling them how to cover it. They had to offer to do freelance work and hope that it would be taken. So these are people without preconceptions, without training, which could have been a handicap. But because of their, of who they were and how they went about it, they did things totally different than the men. And that's how you had this original, deeper and, and broader kind of reporting out of them. And they were three very different kinds of women and three very different kinds of reporters. And it, one, three different, they come from three different continents, yet their outsider status very much allowed them the freedom to, come, to, to be extremely original. And I must say that we're talking about women arriving in 1966. And in those days, the war, the, the full um, American commitment to combat troops was only a year old. And in those days, women not only were um, put in what was then called the pink ghetto of only covering um, women's stories back in the United States, women were raised very differently than men, which is not so much the case today. There, uh, when you looked at the um, employment pages, there were jobs for women and jobs for men. And there's no question you wanted to be in the male category. Women could not have credit cards. Uh, married women had, were Mrs. There was no Ms. Uh, there were no women athletics in, in public schools. I, I could go down the whole list. So they were actually by their gender raised differently. So it's not just the X chromosome or the Y chromosome. They were it was a, a much more genderized um, society. Yet when they got there, as I said, they did make all those changes. You point out that they came from three different continents. They also came from very different social backgrounds. Uh, the the one, th or one thing they had in common was they all spoke French. And I guess the other thing would be that they, they were all there to prove themselves to themselves, probably at least as journalists. Um, did their different backgrounds, give them different filters through which to view the war? Well, sure, of course. I mean, totally. <clears throat> I mean, when you're French, you're French. When you're Australian, you're Australian. And you're American, you're American. And, yes. um, and there are three different disciplines. One's a photojournalist. The French woman's a photojournalist. The, um, the Australian is a combat reporter. And the American is a long-form journalist. So... Yes, and how the, 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 what they chose to specialize in and how they went about it was very much who the, reflected who they were. You make it clear that the men uh, didn't just passively resent the women, but they actively worked to undermine them and remove them from the scene. Mm -hmm. uh, your three pioneers were equal to that task of holding their own. What do you think was driving the men? Was it fear of competition, of not being able to compete with their game? The troops, on the other hand, were more accepting, were they not? Um, it, it was, uh, again, for, let me start with Catherine Lejoie, the French woman who was the photojournalist. That's the most male of all the things you can do in a war is to be a, a photojournalist. She had to convince um, the head of, photography for Associated Press, that he should take a chance and let her at least try to freelance, which he did. He's one of the heroes in the books. And, and then she turned out to have um, an amazing eye and a lot of courage. And she was selling great photographs right away. 
maybe good photographs is a better way. They became great. And, um, and so the, the male response was literally what my title was, you don't belong here. Women were decoration. Women were um, wives or whores. They were not professional journalists who you respected as a peer. And that's culture. It's not necessarily, yeah, certainly she was giving them competitions, but there's a lot of culture in that. At that point, culturally, media in the United States did not send women to sports events because it was too violent. So they literally, women shouldn't go. So, um, so why did they turn against Katrine? I think it's a mixture of all of it. And then once, you know, the, the group starts doing it, it gets to be um, overwhelming. And they, some of them, some of the male uh, reporters and worked with the press spokesman at uh, the military headquarters in Saigon and behind her back um, had her uh, credentials taken away. And the reason was absolutely um, frivolous, you know, that, that she was, she used foul language. Every photographer used foul language that she didn't shower until she got back to Saigon. Everybody did that. I mean, she did nothing, nothing that they said um, disqualified her was something that the others didn't do, but because she was a woman, they took it away. She, she protested, appealed and got her credentials back, but um, she was, ne it, it really, it really was um, significant for her. And she was very careful thereafter about who she worked with. One of the things that uh, is always brought up uh, when you talk about women in combat is that uh, they're afraid that the men will be distracted uh, with a natural protective instinct for the women. I, uh, I recall that Katrine in particular uh, was very sensitive about, she had to carry all her heavy pack of, of mm -hmm. photography gear and whatnot. She would not let, that would not want the men to, to, to try to help her. Uh, were there issues like that, that oh, sure. in terms of acceptance? Yeah, and, um, and that's serious because again, that's cultural. Men are um, instinctively wanting to protect the woman in those days. I don't know how much that's true nowadays. There was an official military ban against women on the uh, battlefield. The United States had the official ban. Um, it was it, it dated back at least to World War II. And in theory, the women should not have been with, covering the American combat um, troop forces in Vietnam. But because President Johnson did not want to declare Vietnam a war. Those all rules about journalism were pretty much loosey-goosey. So women's found a way to get to, the, um, to cover combat for the very first time in history. And when um, General Westmoreland, who was of course the head of all of US military in Vietnam, when he found out, um, he was furious. And exactly that fear came up he said, I don't want um, the soldiers to think they have to um, do something special for you. And it took a, Catherine and a few other women um, had to negotiate to um, suspend the ban for a while. And, and in effect, they, that's when the ban ended. So they were very important for getting rid of that um, very um, 
final, you cannot do this. So um, that, that was very much part of the fear of um, the military. Of course, all those uh, bans and whatnot are falling by the wayside today. And I think as you alluded to, we'll see, uh, probably there will be stories of heroism with women saving men uh, on the battlefield before too long. Uh, so, I'm sure there already are. Yep, there probably are. Uh, so once again, the book is You Don't Belong Here, How Three Women Rewrote the Story of War. And that's Elizabeth Becker's uh, latest book just out this year. Now, let's shift gears for a minute, Elizabeth, and talk more about you. Uh, you took your undergraduate degree work at the University of Washington and earned a degree in Indian or South Asian studies. And then uh, you were next off to India, Agra, I think it was, and doing uh, graduate studies there. How did you decide on this as your field of interest and study? I'm from Seattle, and um, Seattle looks to Asia. It's on the Pacific coast, obviously. But uh, India particularly uh, became an interest because of literature. Um, when I was in high school, I, um, one of my teachers introduced us to the poetry and stories of Rabindranath Tagore, the great Bengali writer who was the first Asian to win the Nobel Prize in literature. And, um, and so... When I went to um, undergraduate, I realized that that's what I wanted to study. And so I, um, I convinced the university to allow me to, to make that degree and they created a degree program. Oh, you created the program. I didn't, I applied well, for and they created. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, what were you thinking career-wise early on? Was it like foreign service, teaching, journalism early in the picture or what? No, I wanted to go into academics and be a teacher. Okay, that would have been uh, a very different life. Right? Yeah, very different. No, no doubt about that. No, no. So in, in 1972, you launched your career as a correspondent with the Washington Post. That is not exactly the starter job that all journalists get. Well, you make, you... Sound, it, it, it does, it, you make it sound more... Um, illustrious than it was. I, um, in graduate school, I had a contretemps with my um, major professor and realized I could not continue. So I um, took my fellowship money and bought a one-way ticket to Cambodia, where a friend of mine had become a very good freelance reporter and was trying to get me to join her out there. And, um, you know, you're very naive. Um, you, you, you don't understand things quite as well as you might want to um, at that age, and so I thought, oh, this will this this will be, this won't be a big deal. I'll go out and and um, I'll learn how to cover a war, maybe for a few months, and then I'll come back. Well, um, you know, th that was foolish, and um, I realized just how tough it was, and what a commitment it would require, uh, which I gave it. And um, this was the Cambodia campaign of the war, if you remember, the direct U.S. combat taking over the war was 65. And in 1970 was the invasion into Cambodia, which um, Congress um, put a kibosh to and um, the troops had to come back after a few months, but the air war continued. So uh, it was, it developed into a, 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 a more or less a civil war. So when I got there, there was very big interest in, um, in, in the, 
in the war from the American media. And that's very important because otherwise I don't know how I would do, but all the media needed articles, but most of the reporters were um, the correspondents for these the outlets were living in Saigon or Hong Kong or someplace like that. There was nobody in Phnom Penh, the Cambodian capital. So they were looking for what's called a stringer. And that's the resident reporter who will do the reporting until the major correspondent would come in for the biggest story. And, um, and I landed at the right time. So uh, after doing a few months with uh, an Asian news magazine, I was hired by the Washington Post and Newsweek and NBC radio to be the resident. So yes, I, I was very lucky. Cambodia is a huge part of your professional career yep. uh, and your accomplishments. Uh, and I'm going to give you another book plug here because I think uh, a lot of what we're going to be talking about comes from uh, this, and I'll use the word tome, 600 plus pages of very fine print. Uh, when the war was over, Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge uh, Revolution. Uh, you published that in 1986. Mm -hmm. And you had about seven years of research into that then. Uh, I'll jump ahead and say that back in 1998, you revisited, come back with a, with a new edition and probably an extra 10 years of, of research uh, in it at that time. Um, and things had changed sufficiently where you felt compelled to do that. Now we're 25 years past the second edition. Uh, any thoughts about... A, a yet another update because the story is still unfolding. Oh, no, 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 no. That would be an entirely different book because um, this was about the war and the revolution. And the, um, my last book, the update ends with the peace accords and a new government and it's a whole new era. Um, so no, it was, I, I, that was enough. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Okay, well, back to sort of the original thread we were on here. Uh, Vietnam was then a communist country. Uh, in 79, they invaded and occupied Cambodia. The Khmer regime, the Khmer Rouge regime was also a communist country. How would you describe the dynamics be between these two regimes at that time? Well, let's go back to the war itself. Um, because you can't understand the dynamics without doing a little refresher course on what happened. Um, so the United States supported the South against communist Ho Chi Minh, North Vietnam. Now the, the 50, 1954 Paris Peace Accords would have unified them under a national election, but the United States um, did not sign it, nor did ZM. And um, so that, the, the conflict continued first against France, and then when the nations were divided, Ho Chi Minh versus South Vietnam with active participation of the United States. So all through this, um, there was, a, there was, a, there was a tension among communists. The Sino-Soviet split was happening. And um, the the Vietnamese did not want to take on Cambodia at all. And um, they, 
they had a deal with the neutral head of Cambodia, Nordam Sihanouk, that he would he would play, Nordam Sihanouk played one side against the other with the Americans doing, and South Vietnamese helping one way and helping the communists another way. And, um, and, and the Viet, this was great for the Vietnamese because they did not want to have to, you know, help the, the, the very small Cambodian Communist Party. Well, that's the beginning of a strong resentment. The United States supported a, a military coup against Sihanouk and an invasion. And then the South, North Vietnamese went to help the Khmer Rouge because they did not want the Americans um, to cut off their um, supply routes. I'm going into too much detail, but no. this is a long history. And, um, and so then uh, both, side, both communist sides win. Now, remember the raison d'etre for the United States in the war was stop the communists in Vietnam because if they win, they'll, they'll take over all of Southeast Asia. The domino theory. Yes. And that goes back to um, President Eisenhower and Secretary of State Dulles. And uh, so this is, this, is the, um, this is the thing that just is so upended. Those theories, instead of, North Viet, uh, the, instead of communist Vietnam going after non-communist Southeast Asia, they had one war. And that was against communist Cambodia. And they overthrew the Khmer Rouge who had been... Um, instigating a border war. And um, the Khmer Rouge were, besides genocidal, they were also incompetent. And like a lot of uh, autocratic, uh, awful dictators, they w you blame a neighbor for your problems. So Vietnam became their um, bad guy. And they instigated, they blamed a whole bunch of things on it. And finally, Vietnam said, I've had it. They overthrew the Khmer Rouge and they thought, oh, the world, world is going to be happy with what we've done. Instead, the world was not and sided with the Khmer Rouge. The Khmer Rouge were able to keep the UN seat. Um, the Vietnamese were um, the ones who were um, uh, criticized for taking over another, another country and it sparked another war. The Vietnamese eventually left and that triggered peace accords because um, everybody was afraid that then the Khmer Rouge would come back again and then who would be blamed for it. So it's a very twist and turn and none of it, none of it, none of it was predicted for all those terrible long years of war. None of it. Um, I got the impression from uh, some of what I read that the, uh, the population during the revolution, the Khmer Rouge revolution, uh, was somewhat indifferent to who, who might eventually uh, survive and, and win the war. Uh, and that uh, in, in that the, uh, when the revolution finally uh, concluded and the Khmer Rouge were in charge, they having kept kind of a low profile now emerged with a very different profile. Uh, and I guess the, the, the story that hit the, the U.S. on the killing fields in terms of that movie tells the full range of, of the atrocities they convict. But am I right that... Uh, well, that just we, not, well, the war was not the re revolution. So the war is from yeah. 70s to 75, and that's just a war. Okay. There's no revolution. I mean, they, and um, the North Vietnamese 
very much did most, most of the fighting in the first few years of the war so that the Khmer Rouge could be, they, they were completely unprepared for this. They were not ready. They were not, they were not ready for prime time at all. And, um, and only when the North Vietnamese left, which was after the peace accords of 73, did the Khmer Rouge begin to take over. So they, you know, the Cambodian population wanted the war over. They wanted, there's no question. They exactly. That, they that's wanted. your title. That, that's where their yeah. title really comes from. And, um, but there was, it's not as if they loved the Lan Nol regime. The government was corrupt. It was not democratic. It, it, it had some of the same issues of South Vietnam. You know, supposedly yes. non-communist, but doesn't mean you're democratic. It was the opposite. And whenever there was a, there was a hint that the population wanted a different leader, Lan Nol declared martial law and, and, and jailed people just like Xiem and then too. And the other thing was that there, the neutral leader, Sihanouk, had gone to support the Khmer Rouge because he was furious that he was overthrown. So it was all a slosh and people did not know which way was which. And even when the Khmer Rouge came to power, it took them a while to realize just how hideous they were. And then it was too late. And, and you go on to point out that uh, fully a quarter of the population uh, of Cambodia uh, was essentially slaughtered uh, oh. in, in the killing fields. As one well, of the they were, they died be, um, uh, through starvation, Isn't malnutrition, poor medicine. I mean, they were treated like, um, like uh, work animals. And the whole country was cut off in a way that I don't think has, has any parallel in modern times, not even North Korea. Has, has history really come to grips with the magnitude of, of that almost a genocide? Well, yes and no. Um, we tend to be, we, like America, we tend to be very familiar with Europe. And we know the Holocaust story. We know how horrible that was. And right. there are Holocaust museums. And, and we, we know that the, the uh, Jewish Americans who had relatives and with lots of movies and so on and so forth were less attuned to Asian countries. And Cambodia is a small Asian country. So um, it took a long time for this to break through. Um, the, uh, at first, the United States didn't want to believe it. A lot of countries didn't want to believe it. But um, you're right, the killing fields was very important for the popular message. And then after decades, finally, there was a, a, a genocidal tribunal, which found the senior leaders guilty. So there's been progress. Uh, we'll come, come back to those, uh, that tribunal. Uh, I get a strong impression uh, that your many years in Cambodia have created a somewhat deep affection for the, for the people of that country. And I base this in part on your very moving story about Bofana, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, and made into a movie as well as captured in your book. Uh, and also from what I took to be somewhat of a lament, a nostalgic lament uh, about uh, the culture being best symbolized by the Angor uh, temple. Uh, is there a symbolism for you in those ruins? Um, well, yes. I, well, the ruins aside, um, remember, that's what I studied at university. That Cambodia is 
I, I studied it from afar because it's, it's the country most influenced in many respects by India. So I had already had a basis for understanding and appreciating. And then you live there. And if you didn't care a lot about them, you wouldn't spend all the time working there. I mean, you can only care about so many countries, I think. And yeah, um, there's no question. I, I very much uh, uh, love the country, the culture, the people. I can't stand what's happened to it. Yes. I mean, if you care about it, then you're going to be more angry than if you didn't. And, um, and Angkor, you can't, if you know Cambodia, you can't help but understand that it's, it plays a significant role, first of all, as a symbol of what it used to be. And I'm not that nostalgic about it. I, I, love, the, um, I love the temples, they're gorgeous. And, and they're, it's a monument to um, the, in, the ingenious and artistic and engineering might of Cambodia. But it's also for Cambodians in particular, it's, it is their reminder that this is their old culture. They're not some ne'er-do-well little developing nation which is, which is one of those um, almost patronizing things to say about all these countries with their very old civilizations. And um, they were developed long before we were. Oh, I, I, wrote, I also wrote an investigation of tourism where earning money through tourism, particularly to Angkor, isn't, is, is hurting the, uh, the temples themselves. My wife and I were there in, in ah. 2014. Uh, to see those temples, so we. we what did you there. think? Uh, didn't really get much feeling for a context. I'd have to say, oh. uh, in, in terms of how the uh, Cambodian people uh, felt about it then, but certainly in awe of what they stood for and the, the beauty of the mm -hmm. that you could see of those temples. Were they very crowded? Um, Actually, not two. Oh, good. You were lucky. You're yes. lucky. Good, good, good. You had kind of a rare opportunity to get uh, close-up views of what was happening in Cambodia, even to the extent of being able to, uh, with your group, personally interview Pol Pot. Uh, can you describe that experience for us? Well, um, as I said, Cambodia was cut off as soon as the Khmer Rouge won cut off. Only two or three countries had, had, had flights into it. No outside world mail, no outside world telephone, no outside world cable. If you wanted any the only way to contact anybody there is through the government and that's no contact. So um, the only thing we could know about Cambodia after the Khmer Rouge won and closed off the country was through refugees who got to the border in Thailand or through um, official broadcasts. There used to be something called the foreign FIBAS, Foreign Broadcast Information Service, where you could um, yeah. um, read every day what was on the foreign broadcast of any country. And so we were always use, reading those from FIBAS to try to keep up. And then reporters would interview uh, the rare um, official who got to go in and out. So we were all worried about what was going on. And I, um, I was one of the journalists who kept sending requests for visa. Can I come and see what's going on? And um, at the, towards the end of 1978, 
the Khmer Rouge realized that the Vietnamese were not going to put up with their border war anymore. The Khmer Rouge were really worried. They realized that they had pushed too hard and they were afraid that Vietnam was going to, to invade and possibly go as far as the Mekong. So first they asked the UN generals, um, the, U, the secretary general of the UN, then Kurt Waldheim. They asked him to come and they hoped that would mean that would keep the Vietnamese from evading. But um, Kurt Waldheim said, no, thank you. And so they asked um, two journalists and a professor and I was one of the two journalists. So uh, we were the first and it turned out the last um, uh, non-communist press, I should say. And um, it was amazing. It was like, uh, the only thing I, the only thing that helped me in my preparations was to read up on the Danish uh, Red Cross who had group that had been um, allowed to go to the Terenstad uh, camp in, they got fooled with you know, orchestras and flowers and all that sort of stuff. And um, that was the only thing preparation I could do. And that really helped because we were under, we, we, everything we did was under their control. If we talked to anybody, that person was brought to us. And um, so it was very spooky. And I was the only one of the group that had lived there. And I realized how spooky it was because I realized how one, the, the cities had been emptied. Uh, there were no schools. The temples, Buddhist temples weren't being used. And, and I knew the shop, there's nothing, nothing. So I was really spooked. And um, then on the very last day, we were um, told, given an hour before we were taken to interview Pol Pot. And the, my um, journalist colleague, Richard Dudman and I were taken in one group. And then after that, the professor went. So um, as in, as we acquired in those days, I had, we both had written out questions on duplicates and given it in advance with no idea whether or not we talked to him. We arrived, um, he was flanked by his uh, foreign minister and the number two in the foreign ministry and the top uh, translator. And we sat down, he looked um, very debonair. He was in a really very nicely tailored Mao suit, uh, charming looking. And we sat down and um, he, even though we knew he spoke French, he would only speak Khmer. And through the translations, he said, we will give you answers to your questions later, but now, um, he was going to talk to us about the real problem. And so it was almost two hours of listening to how Vietnam was going to invade Cambodia and the United States and NATO should come and protect Cambodia. Because he feared that Vietnam would be supported by the Soviet Union and, uh, well, the Warsaw Pact, if you remember what that was. Oh, yeah. So that the, he, yeah, he imagined the Warsaw Pact coming with Vietnam and he needed NATO to support him. Um, it was, it, it, that's all he talked about. That was what is, and that's clearly then it became quite clear why we had been brought there to bring back that message. So that was our last night. And we went back to our guest house, the official guest house, and we went to bed. And that night um, 
one, a Cambodian gunman came, attacked our house. I fled to my room. Uh, he, the gunman went upstairs, shot at the bottom part of Mr. Dudman's room, and then went into the bedroom of the, the academic and murdered him. Malcolm the next Caldwell. day, Malcolm Caldwell. The next day, we took um, we took the flight to Beijing with his body in a cas casket, and um, two days later, the Vietnamese invaded. So um, it was astonishing. Did you ever have the feeling that maybe this had some uh, similarity to what it might have been like to uh, interview Adolf Hitler? Um, no, no, no. What I was, what I kept thinking is now I, I have a taste for what Cambodians have gone through the last four years. Yeah. That the fear, that um, the fear of that night, they went through every night. If they heard a dog barking in their villages, they knew somebody was going to be taken away and, and killed for no good reason. So I didn't, I didn't think of anything, but what, my God, how could you live through this? Yeah, that must have been pretty traumatic. Yeah. You wrote an op-ed in 2015 uh, about uh, being asked to testify at the War Crimes Tribunal for Pol Pot. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us what was at stake in your decision and, and how that turned out. Well, um, this is a lively subject among journalists because um, two reasons. There's the philosophical that if you testify, are you taking sides? And then there's the, the question of um, the rules for journalism, that you, um, you can't betray a source. So if you, if, you got, if, if you were called to testify and you had promised the source anonymity, then you couldn't testify about it. So uh, there are all kinds of legal things. And it's only, it's only been in the last few decades that, that reporters have been called to testify. I looked at it as if I didn't testify, I'd be taking a privileged position that I think is unwarranted, that um, we are, in fact, individuals. We're, you know, there's nothing in the journalist code that doesn't allow you to do it. And if I didn't do it, I felt that I would be taking too much of a privileged position because I was witnessing stuff nobody else witnessed. Then secondly, I checked with a lawyer and he said, before you testify, put any material you're gonna refer to in the public record. So that's what I did. I put all of my papers and photographs and, and um, tapes of interviews. I gave it all to my university. So it was on the public record. And then I went and testified. The theme of this podcast is service. And I invited you to talk with me out of my personal conviction. Hopefully it's shared by the American people that journalists, particularly war correspondents, perform a vital service for our, our democracy, even if that's sometimes controversial. Do you as a journalist share that view? Is it a significant driver of your motivation? Well, yes, it's up to you, you make it sound more nobling than it feels. Um, uh, yeah, uh, we journalists have to be there because how can you expect, we're not, 
and we we're not fighting. We have war is a very important decision for any country to take, and how it's executed. The ramifications are you can't even begin to talk about it. So yeah, we have to be there. And yes, it's important for democracy. And you know, a country is becoming anti-democratic when they start putting the journalists in jails. And no one stands up for us in the middle of a basketball ga- baseball game and say, thank you for your service. Nobody, no one <laughs> ever, no one ever thanks us for a service. And we're bound to be thrown in jail before we're given um, a, a thank you for your democracy award. It's a service that's not often recognized. And um, the previous president um, was trying to get rid of us. And it yeah. was, and, and I think that was, um, that was a, a clue to the, um, the threat democ- that to democracy, if you do not allow journalism, and you don't have to agree with us, and you can check us out. But without journalism, we're up, it's, what did Thomas Jefferson say? If it's a question of government or or newspapers, I'll take newspapers. And the Washington Post has adopted the motto, democracy dies in darkness. Yes, 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 yes. The same type of thing. And, um, you know, who are the, the, um, the heroes that we see in other countries, like um, in Russia? Yeah. They're journalists. And um, it's always journalists. And um, it's, it's, it's scary. And it's, it's you, you're, you're putting your life on the line in a way that is not recognized as such. There are no uh, medals. Thinking back to uh, Vietnam and, and Kate, Katrine, and, and Frankie, mm-hmm. uh, were they motivated by any kind of sense of calling to tell story, or is it an adventure for them? Oh, if it were just an adventure, no, they would not have put up with this because, okay. <laughs> no, um, <clears throat> of course, they were serious people. They were serious people, and this was the most important thing that was going on in the world. So, yeah, absolutely. And um, and the the diligence and um, hard work they put in, and the sacrifices they made, that's not adventure. That's um, that's a it's a deep commitment. And <clears throat> the uh, see, Katrine work was recognized pretty much right away. She's the first woman to ever win the George Book Award for photography, which is generally for um, difficult conflict. And then the first woman to ever win the Robert Kappa Gold Medal Award. That's huge. Very young woman. Um, Has any woman ever made a combat jump like she did with the 173rd Brigade? And I don't know. Um, <laughs> that was the only one during the Vietnam War. I don't know. I did not do that research. Then, um, I mean, you do that you can read, read my book and say, oh, what adventure, but you don't feel, I mean, I was trying to make you feel all of the, the work and what they had to put up with. And, and they, particularly Katrine and um, Kate Webb, the Australian, the combat reporter, they suffered serious PTSD. I mean, when you read the book, you realize that they, they witnessed more war than most soldiers did, easily. And in those days, not only was PTSD not recognized as such, but it certainly was not considered that journalists suffered from it. That is the soldiers who suffer from, from that and um, whatever it was called in those days. So yeah, um, there, it's, it's a calling very much so. And especially when 
the war rewards were not obvious and the uh, and the deficits were very clear i mean <laughs> you would you you took a lot of yeah. you know hassle um Okay, I, let's shift gears again. I'd, I'd be remiss in not asking you about your work with the New York Times, and in particular, uh, in the team with the team covering 9/11, uh, which led to you the, and the team being awarded the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, what was it about that work that led to this distinct recognition? Well, this is a it's 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 a good portion of the paper, and it's. Um, because the Times was, you know, in New York, well, I had I had been the Pentagon correspondent, and I'd just been asked to to go into international economics beat, but they put me right back on the beat. Um, we just threw everything at it. We did, um, you know, the the people we lost profiles. We did. Uh, I was part of the um, the reaction and what they were going to do, and um, the military side. Um, and it's, um, you know some of us who covered wars before we saw the towers, we saw what happened to the Pentagon and we said, you know, this is, this is what we covered outside of the country. Now it's here. And trying to get that, um, that um, message across. uh, That's the first attack since Pearl Harbor. It's, 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 it was just historic. And, um, but it was also, it was, it was exhausting because um, you know, Again, as a reporter, the the administration of President George W. Bush was didn't want us to get too close. So you're 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 worried about your country, but then you you got all the static of the administration. It's all that sort of stuff. Um, and um, and then of course the um, the decision to um, go into Iraq was that just tore up. Um, this is after 9-11, but, sure. um, but 9-11, that, that was one of the most intense, intense um, years for the newspaper, I think, for the country. Well, uh, there's so much more that we could explore with your writings and, and everything, but I'm respectful of your time, and I do want to thank you so much uh, for taking the time to, to be with us today. And maybe I'm going to be the first, but let me say Thank you for your service, Elizabeth <laughs> Becker. Well, I will accept that as a journalist. <laughs> and, um, and no, thank you for thinking of us as, as providing that service. That, that's very touching. Thank you very much. Uh, you're more than welcome. And you've earned so much more than that. <laughs> no, no, no. So. Thank you so much. Again, this is Alan Salisbury with Profiles in Service. We've talked with Elizabeth Becker today. Uh, and I look forward to our next opportunity to join the listening audience with our next Profile in Service. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is powered by and copyright of the Coda Support Foundation. Coda Support presents Profiles and Service is hosted by Major General Alan B. Salisbury and produced by Carly Van Tassel. The opinions of the guests on the show do not directly reflect the stance of the Coda Support Foundation. To learn more about Coda Support, please visit www.codasupport.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. 
Finally, if you or someone you know is a service member, veteran, caregiver, or military family member in need of assistance, please visit codasupport.org slash get help or create a free account at patriotlink.org.